Well, we are in the book of Galatians. We are moving into chapter 5, and hopefully we are uh, looking forward to um, the balance of this book. Uh, we're going to, we have really been working on developing the arguments for the liberty that we have in Christ, for the fact that our salvation is independent of the law, um, in the sense that we are not bound to keep it at this point, but we are rather uh, free from the bondage that we fell under because we could not keep it, and nor could any man save our Lord, Jesus Christ. And so, based upon his completion of the law and our faith in that work, um, we are redeemed. And so he has developed that argument to counter those that say, no, you must be circumcised, you must keep the law, uh, and that can be... Um, developed in a lot of different ways. Um, we have seen that over the church history, how different legalism styles have come into vogue now and again and have really defined some denominations. Um, I uh, find it interesting when you look across different denominations of what they emphasize. Um, in the Church of Christ, no musical instruments, not allowed to do that. So everything is a cappella. Um, and uh, that's uh, their thing. And so when you look across uh, different ways that this comes across, that this comes forward, I should say, and reveals itself, exposes itself, we um, begin to value the, a book like Galatians. Well, we come to chapter 5, and now we're starting to see, okay, we've got the case established of why our... Faith is not tied into keeping any kind of law, but rather it's tied into a person, Jesus Christ. So now what? So that's really what we're going to spend the last uh, portions of this book really examining. Does that mean we can do whatever we want? What, is, what does it mean? Um, but there's one facet of this that we want to cover before we get into what we many think of as more of the positive elements of Galatians where we are going to talk about what the Christian life does look like. If it doesn't look like keeping the law, what does it look like? And what does it mean to stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has made us free? Uh, and we've looked at chapter 5 and uh, verse 1, and, and we're really uh, now going to, and we looked about the, the warning that's there that uh, two weeks ago, it's been a couple weeks because of our business meeting, um, that if you become circumcised, that you have to keep the whole law, you are estranged from Christ. I mean, that's you're fallen from grace. That was a scary passage. Well, counterbalancing that is now, okay, what is the wonder? What is the joy, the thrill, the, the security of being uh, saved to liberty, to standing fast in that liberty that Christ has for us? And we're going to be seeing that really in the... Uh, next few passages, but there is one portion, and, and what we're going to say tonight is going to kind of set that up, and I'm going to be very deliberate not to go there, because I don't want to encroach on next Sunday night's lesson, or message, um, and so I really want to focus in on one fine point um, that we have spoken of throughout this study, really, there's still one more aspect of this that um, we want to address. And we've addressed the doctrine and how to counter that and why it is erroneous. But we haven't really t 
taken the time um, to really get into what do we do with the people that are teaching it. And that's what Paul wants to do. As he gives this really strong warning, if you go back, you are going to be separated from Christ. You're going to be estranged from him. You're going to be fallen from grace. So he has some other things to share of his ideas and thoughts over the uh, people that are spreading this kind of teaching that is uh, tripping people up. And so let's pick it up in chapter 5 of Galatians. Um, and we will, uh, let's go ahead and read verse 5 and following, and we'll read uh, through verse 15. Um, like I said, we're not going to spend a lot of time on the latter verses there, but we want to get the context. We are going to jump to verse 15. It says, um, For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. And again, this is going to be pressed into next week. I'm not going to, I'm not going to handle these past verses very much. Verse 7, it says, You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you and the Lord that you will have no other mind, that he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I would wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off, for you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware, lest you be consumed by one another. Let's go learn prayer. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We pray as we get into it that you might direct our thoughts and, and uh, words and uh, our hearts, that we might be attuned to your truth, that you might uh, bring it to mind, not only tonight, um, but in days and weeks and months to come until you're coming, that we might be faithful in our walk with you and our service before you. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. So we have seen on a couple of occasions where Paul is very direct and very um, forthright in his declaration that no one um, is going to be able to stand against him and uh, not have a fight if they're going to take this position. If they're going to take the position of the Judaizers, that they're going to have a tenacious enemy in Paul that he will go through whatever needs to go through. He will argue this point because it's so vital to the gospel. It's so vital to Christian living. It's vital to the church. And hence, Galatians is borne out again in Romans and other places. And we find Paul willing to engage in this. And so we find this in the book of Acts where we uh, see great uh, <laughs> arguments arising, uh, disputes and these are not discussions. These are disputes that Paul's having. He says, no way. And so they, they're going to head down to Jerusalem to resolve this. But uh, here we start to see a little bit more pointedly um, Paul's perspective on these that come in. And we want to talk about what do we do with them? What do we do with individuals in our midst? And there's two classifications I want to talk about. Um, and then there's a third that we want to discuss as well tonight that uh, uh, is endangered. Because he also talks about why are you endangered? Why are you 
in this state of not being sure of yourself and not being confident. And so we want to handle, first, the two classifications of people in the church that will lend itself towards legalism, if not full-blown commitment to it. And so we have, and, and these two, I think, are, are Paul would see and view very differently, given the text before us. So he talks, first of all, about those that have really begun to adopt this teaching. Those that were confronted with it, saw some value to it, it seemed to make sense. Perhaps the speaker was very charismatic and very attractive, and so they were drawn to this position um, in uh, recent time. And uh, perhaps they had come to Christ under Paul, had been trained in, in a, some scriptures, but they had been drawn to Christ, to these others. And his statement to them is the warning that we saw earlier, but it's also this, this challenge of recognizing that you are really exposing something about yourself. You're exposing a theological weakness and a theological uh, inability to discern. And so his statement is, you ran well, um, but now you're being hindered. And so we have really these two classifications. You have the people being hindered and the ones who are doing the hindering. And we're going to get to them in a little bit. So his concern is there's still some possibility, there's still some hope of extracting these people out of this error. Um, These are the ones who have been hindered, who have been sucked into this for whatever reasons, because it stroked their ego, because they had Jewish blood in them, uh, they they saw the value of the law, things along that line. And there's a a lot of different reasons for this, because it's still extant today. So there's lots of reasons why people get drawn to this. Um, it's really nice to be able to say, well, I keep this, I keep that, I keep that, and therefore uh, I feel like I have a more spiritual stand before God, a stronger position there. Um, there's a lot of circumstances that would draw people into this. And so um, he wants to make it very clear to those individuals, yet again, that what they are drawing, being drawn into is not of God. This is not um, something that God has led you to. And I want to make this really clear because you're going to encounter these people and I have encountered them, encountered them regularly and they come with this statement, I've prayed about this and God led me to this. And I just kind of go, and this, um, no, God doesn't lead you into error. He doesn't lead you away from the truth of his word. And you might say, oh, I was praying, I was praying, and then this happened. And this is the difficulty with us having that kind of view of prayer. Um, and and I, I've seen that several times, um, that whatever happens right after I pray, that that's God's leading. Okay? So I prayed this, and so this came to mind, or this happened in my life, so that must, must be God's answer to my prayer. Um, Based upon that, let's just say that uh, my name was Job, and I'm sitting in an ash heap covered in boils, having lost my family, and I am mourning and, and uh, praying to God, what has happened, what's going on, and what's the next thing that happens after I've prayed that prayer? Three men show up. Are they God's answer to his prayer? No. 
They're going to tell him error after error after error. And by the end of the book, God's going to chastise them and say, you have been not spoken rightly of me. Isn't that interesting? That the first response, it would be real easy to say, oh, this is God's answer to my prayer. My three friends have just shown up to comfort me. And they sit there with him in silence for a while. And then they start giving their advice. And it's all nonsense. It's error. But from a modern perspective, many today would say, oh, that's God's answer to my prayer because that happened right after I prayed and they came and these were people that had a message and, and uh, that they were very convinced of and, and, uh, and after all, these were, you know, they had the compassion to come and sit with me and there was every evidence that I should give them full attention and, and uh, follow their advice. Um, and Job would have been wrong. And the wisdom of Job is to be able to see through that and to recognize that just because you just finished praying for God to explain things to you or to help you or to direct you in the truth doesn't mean the first thing you come across is his answer to that prayer. Now, I hear people in their testimony of how they came to Christ say, well, I was praying, and then I, this is God answering that prayer, and, they, they, and we think, well, that's how God always works. Sometimes that's how God works. Um, I also appreciate, though, that we have to remember there are those who said, I was searching, 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 searching. I got into this, I got into that, and I got into this before I found the truth in God's word. Well, was God negligent there that he didn't send the right person to him right away? Um, and so this attitude is, is I, I come across it regularly while I prayed, and this that came right after I prayed um, must be God's message to me, must be experience that God is trying to answer this prayer by means of, um, and uh, then we respond to it as if we have divine permission or divine direction. Um, never crossing our mind that we should probably get out our Bibles and look. There's an idea. Get out your Bible and look when you're done praying. Um, but rather we're going to go by an experience, a feeling, um, advice that we hear from others. And so Paul here is saying, listen, you've been persuaded. Um, this persuasion um, is not from God who has called you. They're going to come into your life even at very critical times, those that are going to seek to introduce you to error, either in doctrine or in practice, they're going to try to lead you out of the truth into their way, whether it's to justify themselves or whatever. They're going to come these people. And we're going to talk about what's going to protect you from that a little bit later on. But for Paul, he says, listen, um, you need to get out of this. And that's really the people Galatians is written to. His focus is on people that have already started to adopt this. And he's going to have to, so he's undoing the theology. He's backed it up and he's proving it wrong. But there's a second group of people that come into the church. There are those that have had that influence, had that exposure, have bought into it. But... Um, it's a secondary teaching. It's something that they have picked up from some other Bible teacher, pastor, friend, family member, whatever. 
Well, now there's another one who has come in here, and that is the leaven. He calls it a little leaven in verse 9. And he asks the question in verse 7, Who hindered you? Who started all this? Where, what is the source of this? And we need to recognize the difference between the source of error, those who have been uh, caught in that error, um, and recognize that our relationship to those two are different. And it is easy just to cast them all into the same pot. But I think we're doing a disservice to some believers who are just caught in it. And I'm going to give you a really strong example here in a little bit. But um, what do we do with the guy who caused it? The who, the leaven, the little leaven that affect a whole great big lump, this little leaven. What do you do with that? And then in verse 10, it says, he who troubles you. This is singular. One guy was causing this kind of problem. One guy in a congregation can create this mess. If he is well-respected, if he knows Greek and Hebrew, that always helps. Um, If he's articulate, if he's charismatic, one guy can cause this kind of havoc. He says, he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. Paul doesn't even know who the guy is. He doesn't need to know. But he sees the result. The people know who he is. There's the instigator, the one who came in with that agenda and pushes it and pushes it and pushes it. That that is what he is proclaiming and whether he has gotten into a role of authority before he exposed that and then started using that influence. Uh, however it, was, it came about, um, uh, Paul says there's someone that's instigated this. You guys didn't just in your study of scripture come up with this on your own. Not from what I taught you, and not from the gospel. It doesn't come from God, even if you prayed before it showed up. Um, It didn't come from God, because it's not in accordance with his truth. So, who brought this in? Because the Spirit doesn't lead you into error. We're going to see that later on in the chapter, a couple, three weeks from now. And so, this has to... Um, be from one individual. And it's not Paul. Paul didn't teach him this. Uh, And that's what he says. It's not for me. Um, If I still taught circumcision, I wouldn't be persecuted by the Jews at all. Um, I wouldn't be an offense to them. Um, And now he says in verse 12, and this is a really tough verse for us to um, accept as being in our Bibles, but it's there. Paul says, I could wish that those who trouble you, remember, not you who are being caught in this, but you, those who are instigating it, those that are causing it. Now he's gone into the plural. So, and we're going to talk about why it's plural now. Um, he says, would even cut themselves off. And literally what he's saying is that they mutilate their own private parts. They, they, he would mutilate themselves. If they were going there, you know, they want to circumcise, 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 well, let's just cut it all. That's what he's saying. I just wish they would just cut them all and just completely mutilate themselves. Um, that's Paul's perspective on them. That's what he thinks of their value to the church. Um, and so he's now saying that now it's a plural. So one man instigated this is, is a very strong likelihood 
Um, he had gathered some very loyal people to his, to his uh, position. And so now we have a group who are um, troubling the church. One man and a couple of followers of him that are very committed to that position. And they are causing trouble. Paul says, um, if I had my way, they, you know, why don't they go mutilate themselves? Um, and that's a very strong term. Um, and it's kind of interesting, and it has an explanation point after the end of it. Um, trying to communicate to you, this is a very strong language that's being used here about what Paul wishes would happen to these people. Uh, that that just needs to, uh, they just need to be destroyed. This is not a, a, situation that uh, we are looking to bring them around to our position or anything like that. It is just uh, an abhorrence of not just what they're teaching, but the idea that they would take it upon themselves to introduce this teaching in the manner and in the uh, uh, interests, their own self-interests that they had. And so when you read through Paul's writings and letter after letter, the, his teaching about false teachers is very different than those who are caught in false teaching. Those who are perpetrating this act on the church, Paul just, um, he just condemns them. Condemn, there's no hope. There's no, there's no reasoning with these people. There is no idea of reaching them. There's no idea of turning them around. Um, in, in his view, they are the ones fallen from grace. They are the ones estranged from Christ. They are the ones that need to just be sent away, that are gone the way of Satan. Um, he, he is, and, and this is not atypical of Paul. He has very strong language about people like this um, in other books as well. And he'll name names. He's not afraid to do that. He just doesn't know the name in this case. If he knew the name, he would name them. He's named them before in other books. And he's willing to just point the finger and say, get that person out of your church. Get them away. Don't associate with them. Don't smile at them. Don't greet them. Um, They come and they're introducing error. You don't even bless them on their way. Talk about the cold shoulder. It's just a coldness to them because they are troublemakers. Now, we're not talking about those that want their way in the church, about whether the carpet's a certain color or things like that. Um, usually those people are caught in a different kind of sin. We're talking about someone who's introducing error in the church. That's the kind of trouble we're talking about. Not because your personalities don't mix and things like that. It's really not um, anywhere on the horizon of this passage. We're talking about those that are bringing in error and bringing in an agenda that is contrary to God's word. And so, how, what does this look like? And uh, uh, we're going to talk about the third type of people and those that are susceptible to it. Um, this week I've been doing some... It all started researching this morning's message a little bit about some of the history of the Hinnom Valley. I don't know how I got to this other stuff. Um, and also doing some work on um, Christ's return. I come across this site, this man who says, we are all waiting for Jesus' return. Okay, that's interesting. And uh, he is a Muslim teacher. It's like, interesting. Okay, let me see. 
Muslim eschatology. I didn't really know a lot of Islamic teaching on eschatology. Um, so I thought I'd look it up. Well, and the big thing was this guy used to be a Christian Bible scholar. That's how they described him. Christian Bible scholar who converted to Islam. And so I listened to an entire presentation, one hour long, um, taking notes as we're going, and uh, um, incredible, incredible message. And at the end of it, I was just almost crushed. I was like, if I didn't know God's word very well, I could easily be convinced that this guy has the truth. He put in a smattering of Old Testament. He took us from Genesis to Revelation. He took uh, uh, principles that all of us would espouse. Um, he quoted from the New Testament. He did all these things and, and made it very clear um, that Islam is simply uh, the extension of the working of God among men. It started off with Judaism, then turned to Christianity after Jesus, and then turned to Islam after Muhammad, that Muslims don't hate Christians any more than Christians should hate Jews. Because we're just born out of them. And he's going through and he's using scripture verses. And, and I'm like, and, and so I'm quoting out of the Gospel of John, quoting out of this Gospel, and, and these no Pauline texts. Because Muslims believe that modern Christendom was destroyed by Paul. Paul created all the error. So they don't agree to Pauline stuff. Interesting, isn't it? So all these, all the Pauline books of the New Testament, they don't, won't, but they are more than happy to sit down with the Gospels with you, except maybe Luke. Um, you understand why Luke? That's Paul's guy, right? Uh, so they'll sit down with the Gospels with you. They'll sit down with, with even Revelation. Uh, they'll sit down with some of those books. They love the book of James. You know, they love that. Um, and uh, he goes through, and it was convincing. This is not a guy espousing an error in the church. This is a guy espousing you to a totally abandon Christianity for Islam. And it was powerful. He was very articulate. He, he knew Hebrew. He knew Aramaic. He knew Greek. He was just going to town. And they did one time during that hour, they panned at the audience. They just turned the camera around, and uh, it was a full house. And by that, I mean every seat was full, and the walls were at least double deep, if not triple deep, of people standing. Huge auditorium. And from Paul's perspective, those kinds of people you don't pray for. You don't seek to argue them back. Um, He is exerting every effort to bring people into Islam, to deny Christ is God, to deny that Christ was virgin born, to deny that Christ died, let alone rose again. Those are the parts of Jesus that they don't agree with. But listen how they work around it. Jesus wasn't a virgin born. He, well, he might have been born a virgin. The virginity is established. She was a virgin. But it wasn't birthed by the Holy Spirit. It was God spoke and Jesus became in her womb. 
Well, don't you believe that's possible? Didn't God do that in Genesis? Why don't you have a problem with him doing it in Matthew? And of course, from his perspective, and every good Catholic person would just, I don't know how every Catholic doesn't become a Muslim after hearing that. Because his whole statement was, there is no other woman like Mary, ever. He almost spoke more about her, higher about her than Jesus. Talk about the Queen of Heaven. Islam believes in the Queen of Heaven too, Mary. And so elevated her that she was in such a blessed state that God created the prophet Jesus in her womb. Not that he conjoined with Mary. He created Jesus as a, as a uh, ex nihilo, out of nothing, created Jesus in her womb. Okay, so that makes Jesus a pretty great prophet, doesn't it? So we're okay with that. So virgin birth is okay. Um, it's just that instead of this weird thing of the spirit coming down and having sex with Mary, which didn't happen either. Um, We just have this, so he's not the son of God in terms of being deity in flesh. And then, of course, we have all the teachings of Jesus, and he would be fine with that, and, and, uh, you know, that Jesus didn't die, um, and uh, that that was all made up and added later on. But that Jesus was taken up, like, into heaven. You ever heard of anyone taken up into heaven directly without experiencing death? Sure, you believe that could happen to Enoch, you believe it could happen to Elijah, why don't you think it could happen to Jesus? And so they're waiting for Jesus to come back. Aren't you waiting for Jesus to come back? So is every Muslim, waiting for Jesus to come back. They'll agree with you, oh yeah, we're all waiting for Jesus to be, they don't call him Isa, Um, they have the Arabic name for him, kind of like the Messianic Jews will call him Yeshua, Um, uh, in Islam, it's Isa. When you hear a Muslim talk about Isa, he's talking about Jesus. They're waiting for Jesus to come back. Um, in, in many senses, um, very powerful. So what do you do with an individual like that? Am I going to discuss it? Am I going to try to bring him around to my way of thinking? Am I going to try to straighten him out? No, you condemn him. Point blank, you condemn him. And by the way, there's lots of Bible scholars in Christianity today who deny the virgin birth, who deny uh, the deity of Christ, who deny the resurrection, deny the miracles. There's lots of them. So just because he said he was a Christian Bible scholar prior to becoming a Muslim doesn't mean that he believed what you and I believe. Okay? Every Catholic priest is a Bible scholar, right? Doesn't believe what I believe. And so, um, we have, oh, and by the way, just to share one other thing, he said, Jesus prophesied Muhammad's coming in the Gospel of John. Did you guys know that? Jesus prophesied Muhammad's coming in the Gospel of John. Jesus called Muhammad the comforter, the advocate, the counselor. Now, did Jesus promise the comforter, the advocate, the counselor to come? In John? Sure he did. I go to the Father so that I can send to you the comforter. And this man is convincing lots of people that that's referring to Muhammad. 
instead of to this weird spirit force thing that you Christians hold to, that this your other God, your third God. Very, very attractive. Very well stated. Very well presented. Very humorous. Very laid back. And at the end, people came forward and converted to Islam. Um, looked up some sites on him, and uh, one place called him the Billy Graham of Islam for America. Converting not pagans, not converting Christians to Islam. So what kind of people is he converting? That's our third group. Who's susceptible to this? Well, Paul intimates here that there is a group that are susceptible to this. And let's um, just read verse 13 through 15. We're going to really look at verse 15. It says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all laws fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's really going to drive into next week. But look at verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, beware, lest you be consumed by one another. And so in the midst of leaderless church, leaderless Christianity, where you have all these groups that have varying beliefs, and you have all we talked about this morning, where people are walking around saying, well, that's truth for you, and that's truth for them, and they all have their own interpretations of the Bible, in the midst of this chaos of truth. Because that's really what Christianity looks like. And by Christianity, they mean Every brand that thinks and calls themselves Christian, from Mormons to to uh, every denomination, uh, mainstream denomination, to all of the other cults, to to um, Catholicism, all of that to the world is Christianity. I'm sorry. So when you tell someone you're a Christian, that's who they're lumping you in with. Good luck with that. Okay? So from their perspective, you have all of this, and there is no truth. And this was his most powerful argument in his whole message. In Islam, we have one unchanging book. We don't let it get translated. We don't let people mess with it. Every Muslim, all, every, uh, every Muslim anywhere on the planet will quote you the exact same thing. And his most powerful argument was that our Bibles have been corrupted. And it's proven by all the different versions. It's proven by all the interpretations. It's not as if Islam didn't have different sects among it. But uh, he says, you you go to a bookstore and you see how many different Bibles there are. See how many Korans there are. There's one. But there's all these different Bibles. and, And all these denominations all have these other ideas. And the reason there's so much confusion is because they are missing the last part of the truth. I'm pretty sure Joseph Smith pretty much said the same kind of thing to start Mormonism. The Bible says that when you have all of this and you entertain these groups and you start saying, well, they're, they're the Lord's too, and, um, and we start entertaining them and we bring this all together, he says, listen, you're going to bite and devour one another, you're going to consume one another. We are setting a stage for easy pickings from anyone else who comes in because you have a church that is untrained, 
unled, who has uh, been challenged on every single passage almost in Scripture through textual criticism and liberal doctrine, has challenged almost everything, every miracle, every substantial element of the Bible theologically um, has been challenged. Um, and so what is the end result? The end result is a, is a church that is so weakened because it didn't strengthen the church because we entertain these people as though their message was valid. Do you know what the church used to do with those people? We used to burn heretics at the stake. Well, Catholics did. But you know what the earliest church used to do with them? They would identify them. They would name them. And they would send emissaries to make sure the churches were guarded from them. And they would basically extract them from the circles. And this is what Paul's calling them to do. To maintain that you cannot give them a voice. You cannot give them a place. You cannot give them opportunity because the chaos that that envelops, the the, the division that occurs there, the, the, the snipping back and forth, back and forth, the enemy will use to empty our churches. That's exactly what's going on. Because most Christians, in every survey of the last 40 years that I remember, um, the majority, and now the overwhelming majority of Christians, do not believe that our Bible is an authoritative, absolute truth. We're already in the part of devouring each other. We have so decimated the church in the area of truth that we have set ourselves up to be easy pickings for cults and for people like this man who has got a Texas twang in his voice. And all the down-home talk like Texas drawing men to Islam. You might say, how does it get to there? It gets to there because of the biting and devouring, because we did not deal decisively with those who brought in error. And this is not easy, by the way. I want you to know that. It's not easy on the church, and it's not easy on the pastor, and it's not easy on the man like Paul to have to write and do these things, to say decisively, this is not going to be permitted in this congregation, in this ministry. Um, you're going to have a lot of people say, oh, you're being judgmental. Um, you're being, uh, uh, well, a shepherd has to be able to recognize the threats to his flock. And when he doesn't, what happens to his flock pretty soon? It gets destroyed. It gets eaten. And the difficulty right now is the sheep don't know the enemy from the shepherd. And that's the condition that Paul's talking about here, that we are going to consume by one another, by the very fact that we have tolerated and given ear to and given pulpit time to 
Um, just think about this period of time right now, this, this season of election time. Think about how many of these candidates are standing in church pulpits today. Think about that. In Christian college chapels, we have, we have these men who are ungodly in, some, in many of their circumstances. One or two profess salvation. One's in a, in a cult. One's Catholic. And we go, um, oh, come and speak in our pulpit as if they're one of us. That's going on in, in churches. Do you realize all of these guys are on Sunday are in church somewhere? In the last, um, in the last uh, debate, um, the one Republican just said, I want to thank the Iowans for inviting me into your homes and into your communities and into your churches. We are just surrendering our pulpits to whatever comes along. And then we wonder why we are so weak and susceptible to error coming in. And Paul's declaration is saying, you started well, don't give these men any space. Don't entertain them at all. And he says, (laughs) I could wish that they would just mutilate themselves. I just wish that they would put them through a grinder and just get rid of them. Um, but the reality is, is that they form a very strong test. And we need to be up to that. And that requires us to be well-trained in God's word, to be well-established in his truth, and be able to recognize error whenever it's in the air. And be, have the courage to stand up and say, that's not the truth. That's not the truth. And there are very few people today in our PC world to have, that have the backbone sufficient to do that kind of activity. To stand up and say, that's not the truth. In one of our president's State of the Union speeches a few years ago, in one of his pauses, do you remember that? Some, one of the, I don't know if it was a House or Senator, um, said, that's a lie. And it was just in this quiet part and everybody heard it. And did you see what our president did? He locked onto that guy. And I've never heard of that guy again since. (laughs) I don't know what happened. Oh, don't you call out a liar. And the guy, within 24 hours, apologized publicly. Why? If it was a lie, the one who should be apologizing is the guy who spoke the lie. But in our environment, the enemy is the one who speaks the truth, who points at it and says, that's wrong, that's a lie. Try it. You're going to find out that you'll become the enemy. Just this week, a man who did us a great favor of investigative reporting that shot video of the Planned Parents people selling baby parts was indicted. Planned Parenthood got off. No indictments against Planned Parenthood for what they admitted doing on video. But the man who shot the video and set them up is now going to jail. What's he going to jail for? For saying that's wrong. That's what our world's come to. 
And so we are called to know truth and to stand for truth, but realize that at this point, um, the devouring, the biting has gotten so bad, we are in the act of being consumed and being dissolved as a church. And so truly, our Lord's words, will he find faith on the earth when he comes, is really becoming a stronger reality. So I want to challenge you to stand and call sin, sin. And we'll do that as a church, Lord willing, by his grace and direction. Um, But don't expect a whole bunch of people to applaud that. Uh, I haven't gotten much applause for doing that. In fact, I have other pastors condemning me for it. And we'll just take the stand. Because there's only one applause that I want to really hear, and that's my Savior's. I hope that's your perspective too. So we're going to look at the next. So this is the last of really the the uh, strong verbiage of Galatians about those that are this error. And now we're going to look for the next few weeks um, as we close out the book and get through the next chapter and a half of how does the Christian life look? If it's not the law, what is it? And we'll look at that. Let's go over and pray. Lord God, we thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for this time we can spend your word. We pray that it uh, might be a challenge to us. We recognize the late state of the church. And therefore, we recognize your soon return is really the only solution. But Lord, uh, we do not want to give ground simply because of its inevitability. And we pray you might help us as a church and each individual and family within it to stand its ground, to know you, to know your truth, to live it, not just uh, give lip service to it, and to be able to recognize error and be able to separate from those that would cause harm, further harm, to your truth. And we thank you so much for Paul's insistence And we pray that we might share that insistence that all those who are granted audience here would be held to this standard. We pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.